Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello and welcome back to episode 297 of Sexology Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali, and as always, I am excited that you are joining us today. If you haven't downloaded our free checklist, I invite you to check it out. A few months ago, I created this checklist of nine ideas that you can use to invigorate your foreplay tonight with your partner. It's because many of my clients are telling me that they're bored of the routine that they're having and they're looking for new ideas. So these are easy things that you can do with your partner to have some excitement back in the bedroom. Today, we're going to talk about sexual perfectionism and this tendency to over control situation. When we're talking about control, oftentimes people think about controlling urges. You want to take control of your desire so you're not doing something destructive. That's not an issue that I see in my private practice among clients that I work with. My clients are often very put together, very organized, people who are orienting themselves in a very professional, courteous ways. What tends to be an issue is when you are training yourself to be over-controlled person and it's hard for you to access that passionate part of you. This is what our conversation is centered around. Our guest is Dr. Tom Murray. Tom wrote this wonderful book just got published a couple of days ago. It's about, it's called Making Nice with Naughty. And it talks about this tendency people have to over-control and the cost of it in the bedroom. And how can we address this? Also, at the end of the, this interview, he's going to gift us with this very fun exercise of a building a love fire. So you want to make sure you're listening all the way to the end. If you happen to implement and do it with your partner, send me a DM in Instagram. Our Instagram is at Sexology Podcast. I want to hear your experience with that. Our guest, as I mentioned, is Dr. Tom Mary. Dr. Tom Murray, author, international trainer, educator, and couples and sex therapist supervisor, is a wildly sought-after expert in sexuality and intimate relationships. For more than 20 years, Marie has worked with everyday folks to embrace their weirdness, shed labels and shame, leading to anxiety and better, uh, build better and stronger relationships. He authored Making Nice and Naughty, an intimacy guide for the rule-following, organized perfectionist, practical and color within the line type. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Tom Marie. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited and honored to welcome Dr. Tom Murray in our show. Tom, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be here. I am so excited about this conversation. I recently read your book and I think it's amazing and has lots of very interesting 
than unique approaches to sexual health, to couples' sexuality. So I'm looking forward for us to talk more about it. But before we're talking about the book, tell us how did you get interested in writing this one? Well, in my clinical practice, I began to recognize this pattern that emerged among the clients who were coming in with sexual problems and relationship problems. And that is simply that... uh, they had too much self-control, right? They had these strong beliefs about how the world should be, must be, and has to be. And this kind of rigidity around their personal life bleeds into their sexual life. And then they develop these sexual problems. And I, I endeavored through making this book called Making Nice with Naughty to provide them a, a pathway, if you will, to to develop the psychological flexibility of enjoying sex. I think that is such an important thing to consider because we are training ourselves and it's valued to be controlled and have self-discipline. And somehow we think that when it comes to the time to have sex, then we will be able to access our wilder, more spontaneous part. So I know in the book, you talk a lot about perfectionistic tendency that people have this sense of over control that the society values it so highly. So tell us how does that get in the way of us having great passionate sexual experiences with our partners or partner? Yeah, so let me just talk about that over controlled temperament, since you brought it up, you know, over controlled temperament, like all temperaments are neither good or bad. Right. So think about introversion, extroversion. One isn't better than the other, but rather these are just ways to show up in the world. And as you just mentioned, that overcontrolled temperament is widely valued. You know, the, the characteristics are seen as, as virtues in society. You know, they're the ones that are highly dependable, reliable. They're the ones that uh, show up, if not before work and get, you know, get everything done and stay late. You know, they're really responsible. So you have a, a lot of these values that are rewarded by society. When it, when it gets translated into intimate and sexual relationships, that's when it becomes a problem if it's going to become a problem. Because sex, for example, needs mystery, the unexpected where a lot of people who are over-controlled fear uncertainty, right? So they want plan, they, they, they want things, they want certainty about how things are going to turn out, right? And, and so without that mystery, without that fire of desire that I talk about a little bit in the book, sex can start to get rather routine, or what I call nipple-nipple pussy sex. <laughs> You know, that you know exactly how the game is going to be played. You just push, push play, and it's exactly the same maneuvers and who's going to kiss what, where, when. And it just gets boring over time. And then people start to not be interested in sex, right? So that, that, that over-controlled people, for example, are more likely to want to eat the same thing every day for breakfast, right? But sex, when it's the same way all the time, eventually you naturally lose your appetite for it. And so we have people coming in who uh, have low sexual desire. And they wonder why do they have low sexual desire? And I, I hope to give a possible explanation for a lot of people through, through the book. 
Well, I think when we are having that script that exactly we're doing the same thing, as you mentioned that, and I talk to my clients about it all the time, you know exactly what's happening. And of course, then you get bored and distracted. And people talk about like women having low desire. In reality, many of the women in long-term monogamous relationship that I talk to, they don't have a desire issue. They're just checked out. They're uninspired. They don't want to have those kind of sexual experiences but they also socialize not to advocate for what they want. So I think that's also an issue. That's exactly right. You know, Peggy Kleinplatz, one of our, our colleagues said, and I love it, she goes, it may be that people with low sexual desire don't have something wrong with them. It may be that they have good judgment. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, that they're realizing, I want something more. I want something different. But that can be very anxiety provoking for people is to have that something more, that something different. I agree with you. And I think sometimes it requires kind of tolerating the uncertainty, as you mentioned, that as yes. I think about good sex, like improv, like you don't know what comes next. But, you know, when you are following the same script and then if there is a minor change and you get panicky and you think there's like, OK, this play is a failure that can turn to the different way of looking at things. Well, one of the things that I talk about is sexual perfectionism uh, in the book, which is a very common experience among over-controlled people. And, and, and there are essentially four types of sexual perfectionism. There are the I must be sexually perfect. Number two is my partner must be sexually perfect. Number three is I think my partner thinks I need to be sexually perfect. And number four is society expects me to be sexually perfect. So when you have that kind of pressure in, in impeding the, the, the relationship, you can, you can imagine that people don't want to take risks because they're so afraid that they won't be able to show up uh, perfectly. So for example, the first one being, I must be sexually perfect. If you believe that you have to have an erection every time, 100% of the time that you want one, well, then you're going to be really hypervigilant about not getting an erection. And as you and I know, when you're flooded with adrenaline from the anxiety, that's a, that's a penis deflator, right? Or I must be thinner, or I must have smaller labia, whatever it is, this idea that there's this sexual perfect uh, status can really interfere. Or uh, my partner must be sexually perfect. My partner must have a flat tummy or my, my partner must always keep an erection. You know, how many times have we heard stories of, of people taking it quite personally if their partner loses their erection, you know, or if their partner doesn't orgasm? They, they take that, they take it way too personally. And then not to mention, you know, the role of societal expectations uh, of, of us as, as uh, sexually perfect people. So when you have all of that, that just really dampens the, the playfulness. I agree with you. And when you were talking about, I need to be perfect, I was thinking about someone that I work with and I love for years. We were working together for years and he, he was sharing with me that, you know, everything, if I have a dent in my car, it bothers me. And it's the same with our sexual encounter. If my, as soon as my kind of penis lose its firm 
nervousness, I start panicking. And as you mentioned, yes. that when we panic, then it will kind of like lead to us losing an erection. And that that was a cycle for him. And uh, what was challenging for him as he was reframing things was that this is something that works for me. I'm very successful in my life. I was able to be get to the place that I am because I focus on everything being quote unquote perfect. Well, so for, as you mentioned in your book, that some of this helps people, but some of these things gets in the way of you being able to kind of succeed in kind of succeed in sexual experiences, have enjoying connecting experiences. And it's not as easy as like turning off the switch. So what are some of the recommendations you have for people that they have this overdeveloped desire to control things? I say to my clients, if you have a thought and that thought is heavy, that's your clue that you bought a thought that isn't true. So when they have the thought, I must be perfect, right? Uh, I will ask, uh, let's do a thought experiment. How does it feel inside when you believe the thought, I must be perfect at X and you're not perfect at X? Does that thought feel light or heavy? And they, you know, it doesn't take much convincing. They can go inside, they can see, oh yeah, that's a heavy thought, right? So it's really about then questioning the thoughts that they're having. Where does it say, where, where, where is it written that I must have an erection every time, right? Or, uh, oh, one of them that is often, uh, uh, that we hear particularly among women is I must feel desire first, right? I must feel desire first. And the work of Emily Nagoski in Come As You Are, you know, she really did a wonderful job, I think, uh, explaining desire and the, the various types that for a lot of people, they don't have the want uh, uh, spontaneously, but it's that if they're willing to be turned on, then they can engage in, in sexual behavior and then get excited, right? So questioning the mind chatter that to develop psychological flexibility, which is a big part of the, the, the book's intention, is how do we develop psychological flexibility so that we can be more present? And I love the example that you use in terms of improv, improv right? Improv, the basic or the number one rule of improv is yes and, right? So uh, accepting the now present moment and then adding something to it. So psychological flexibility is a is a big part of uh, having fun in the bedroom as well. I agree with you. And I believe it's a skill that people can cultivate that. Yeah. Like, I think I love that you broke down those four different ways that perfectionism and control shows up in the bedroom. And kind of like, as you mentioned, examining which one of these are I believe in, which one of these are something that impacting me and how can I change it? And I think the concept of desire is also very important. And you know, you talk about it in the book as well. And I had Emily in the past in the podcast. And it's important to know that it's something that you can kind of start with kind of like exploring kind of different things with your partner and see if the desire shows up or not. And that's, I think, the idea that you mentioned that women think that they have to have desire first what leads to sometimes sexless relationships. And you know, you talk about in the book about this agreement, the monogamous agreement. So tell us more about it. I felt that was a little bit controversial, but I loved it. So tell us more. (laughs) (laughs) It is controversial. It is controversial. 
You know, uh, most most people in our culture choose monogamy as the governing institution for their relationship. And, uh, and I think often they choose it because they've been told that it's the gold standard, that it's the best of the best. Well, you know, as a sex positive sex therapist, I don't believe any particular way of relationshiping is any better than any other. They all have their pros and cons. And, and it's really about just deciding which set of pros and cons you want to live with. Well, in the context of monogamy, monogamy has a, a certain set of rights and responsibilities. And so when I have a couple coming in and they report that they haven't had sex in and in months or sometimes even years i'll ask them are you monogamous and the couple will inextricably look at each other and they'll sheepishly say yes yes i think so i hope so and then i'll ask well what is the definition of monogamy and they'll say well sex with one person and i will be i'll say exactly sex with one person if you are not having sex and monogamy is sex with one person, then you're not monogamous, right? And then I go on to describe that monogamy has a set of rights and responsibilities. The right is that you get to experience uh, 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 and enjoy each other's bodies in ways that other people don't have access to. That's the right, the right to enjoy each other's bodies in ways that other people don't have access to. The responsibility is to be responsible for attending or being interested in the sexual needs of the other. Are your sexual needs being met in this relationship because you cannot go down the street, you see? It does not mean, though, that every time your partner wants to have sex, you have to have sex with them, right? Because that uh, it's the ability to say no to sex that the yes gets its meaning from that ability to say no. However, if someone is saying no way more than they're saying yes, then the natural consequence is anger, resentment, and bitterness. And so when people are choosing monogamy, and it is a choice, when people choose monogamy, I think many forget or, or haven't even considered that balance of rights and responsibilities that, oh, if, I, if my partner doesn't want to have sex with me, I have to be asking myself, well, how am I showing up as a lover to my partner that makes it difficult for them to want to have sex with me, right? So that's the, the responsibility. In other words, am I being responsive to the sexual needs of the other? If they're having certain conditions for which, in which sex needs to happen for them, but I'm not being attending to those, then I'm falling short, right? So it's that it's that interaction of the two. What was your? You said that uh, it was it felt a little controversial for you. What was your reaction? I liked it a lot. So my listeners, they know I came from a conservative community. So I like, and my parents they were feminists, and so what I was seeing that okay, so poor these poor women are having compulsory sex. That yeah. felt that time is kind of a I don't know spousal rape in a way. Right, yes. that they were not enthusiastic about it. So I was thinking about, okay, autonomy and choice and all of that are very important. And then I moved away and I'm living in this context right now and this situation that I realized that there are a big group of people that they are forced to celibacy. 
<laughs> you're getting right. married right. to someone with the idea of you you you're gonna have sex with them and the agreement is monogamous relationship and your partner start stop losing interest or they don't want to have sex for a number of different reasons and it, it will have a consequence i'm not saying that it's anyone's fault but if you are in a relationship that you, your partner you or your partner's desire and sexual interests are not getting met then they're going to have a consequence whether it's resentment that you're feeling whether they lose of passion whether it's infidelity but what I realized that people act at time they're shocked that oh god this happened but of course they're gonna have a consequence (laughs) so I love that that you said that well I want to underscore your comment just a moment ago is is that uh, a forced celibacy so often we focus on the right of the person to not be interested in sex What we don't acknowledge, though, is that if the agreement, if the contract is monogamy, then the person who on the receiving end is then forced into celibacy in order to maintain the contract. So the person, the, the, the one partner says, I'm not interested in having sex with you anymore. And you're not allowed to get your sexual needs met elsewhere. Right. And that's the bringing the back to that idea of rights and responsibilities, right? That emphasis on that, the responsibility of being interested in the sexual needs of the other. Otherwise, it can result in, to, in that forced celibacy. I like that a lot. And I invite people if they are in these sexless situations, this relationships, marriages, examine what can you do? Take a step to explore the kind of underlying reasons. And there's a galaxy of options, right? That yes. you can open up the relationship, you can explore different things in your relationship, all sorts of things. You don't necessarily need to feel that I have to force myself to have the certain kind of experience that that's not what we're talking about. This is an invitation for people to explore What's happening underneath? Yeah, and you know, I'm sure you see this in your work too, that people tend to narrowly define sex as penetrative sex. It can be sex when you're just lying with each other and self-stimulating, right? You're just with your partner, they're masturbating, you're masturbating. What I find though, is a lot of over-controlled people have never masturbated in front of their partner. Mm. That they bought into this, this narrative that, that that's only something that you do in private, or maybe they were domesticated as, as children to believe that it was shameful or sinful and, and something you would never do. And yet in my work now, 20 years as a, as a therapist, I find that those couples who are able to masturbate in front of each other tend to experience much more enjoyable sex. Right. It can, first of all, change the script that you've been experimenting with with less pressure and can be very, very hot. I recently (laughs) watched this very interesting series. Have you watched Physical? It's on Hulu. No. no. It's like a talk about, like, it's like these high achieving couples and it's an infidelity that started with mutual masturbation. And it was one of the hottest scenes. Ooh, <laughs> and I've seen I'll for the longest, right? So it, it can look very different for kind of like different people, what, what sex is. And I think it's important to kind of explore different options in the menu. 
one of the chapters in your book that I loved, it was, does your eye light up? Like yeah. sometimes we schedule kind of, I'm sure you are, you have the same experience, the kind of excitement for couples who have intimate dates and they show up so unsexy. They're not excited for the partner. Just like lack of enthusiasm shows. So I know in your book, you talk about kind of like that part of excitement and showing up excited. So tell us more about that. When your, um, do your eyes light up is a, is the chapter. And that, that comes from a Toni Morrison uh, interview that that she had with Oprah. And, and when I was uh, in the 90s, I was such a big fan of Oprah. I rushed home from school to watch Oprah. And, uh, and I remember this episode, and this was in, the, I believe, the late 90s, where Toni Morrison said, essentially, when a child walks into a room, do your eyes light up? And for a lot of over-controlled people, they, they have this curse of the, of the neutral face, or some people call it the resting bitch face. <laughs> right. Right. It's very non-expressive. And, and so what, what can happen is the neutral face, unfortunately, communicates threat. So the, the brain, when it sees a neutral face, and you can try this out, you look at yourself in a mirror and just have a neutral face and notice kind of what that feeling is that bubbles up. Well, it's so important, for example, to communicate to your partner that you're interested in them. So when your partner comes home uh, and perhaps you're in another room or watching television, do you turn off the TV to somehow honor your partner's presence uh, in the room? Do you show enthusiasm, even if internally you may not have those particular feelings, but you know how important it is to communicate to your partner that an essential part of your life. And so your eyes light up is just a reminder that we have to express our affection for our partner so that they can they can see it and experience it otherwise we overcontrolled people can kind of put the push the uh, the cruise control on their relationship and not be uh, investing uh, in the in the relationship dynamic in those kinds of ways. I, I like that a lot because I believe that our body language communicates a lot. And I had uh, many clients that there are two over-controlled people in their relationship. Yeah. What if we are turning off the volume, we're showing into the certain enthusiastic high and show our love and our partner, uh, they cannot mirror it for us. Then what? Well, hopefully that's what a good couples therapist does. <laughs> Right. It's, <laughs> is, is uh, you know, my style, let me just say, you know, my style as a therapist, I think is, is uh, somewhat unique. You know, people come to me because I tend to be much more of a tell you how it is, no beating around the bush and occasional karate chop to the throat kind of therapist. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, I like to I like to say that I'm, I'm like a coach to elite athletes. You know, I want to give you feedback in real time. And so that you can then try on the new set of behaviors and then experiment kind of improvisationally experiment Mm -hmm. with each other's the impact that these new behaviors have. So if I see, for example, um, a a couple talking to each other and the person just has that neutral face uh, or they're not reflecting back what their partner just told them, then I coach them the, well, uh, A, 
well, this is what I noticed and this is what you can do differently. How about you experiment with it so that they can try on those, those behaviors. And sometimes it will be like pretending, right? It's pretending. And, and for a lot of um, uh, over-controlled people, they may have a rule that says, uh, well, if it doesn't feel authentic, I'm not going to do it, right? Uh, at the same time, make-believe can still feel authentic. You know, if we, when, when we were little children, you know, children often play house, right? They want to be mommy and daddy. Why do we do that? Because we want to, we want to experiment with those roles and, and not that they become fixed, but just to allow for possibilities to emerge in the space of the experimentation. And so um, uh, those are exercises that people can do, which is really just experiment. What would it be like if you raised your eyebrows more when you were talking? You know, Botox might get in the way of some of that for some people, but, you know, that important to express outwardly that you're, you desire your partner. Well, and I think that can help people a lot, even outside the bedroom. I know that you you talked in the book about how like most therapists were kind of taught that you have to have neutral face. But right. very early on, you realize that's that's not going to help the client. <laughs> you got to have authentic expression. And right. I think it's important for, for relationships when you're kind of like reading people, when you are in an outside bedroom with other people to practice show communicating the warmth. I think there are so few relationships that might not benefit from that. So overall, I think that can be a very good feedback for people. You know, one of the things that I did not talk about in the book is there, there are two subtypes to over-controlled temperament, the overly agreeable subtype and the overly disagreeable subtype. So the overly agreeable are the ones that I, I call, they poop sunshine. They have a smile all the time and they're just all trying to communicate that they're nice and that they're capable, right? And so they're it's really that facade of, of nicety. And then the overly disagreeable, which is, you know, that more of that neutral face that uh, they're more likely to say no to things before saying yes to things. You know, quite frankly, I, I you know, as an over-controlled person, my default is the disagreeable type. I've had to, you know, really work on uh, on uh, mitigating that. And, and, and so you can still have people who are over control to show up in those those uh, saccharine ways. And then you can have over-controlled people who show up maybe more like me, who is that that stereotypical Freudian look, you know, one of the stories I share in, in, in the book is uh, uh, I was working with a client once, and this was when I was a director of a student mental health center at a major performing arts conservatory. And the client just said, out of the blue, he said, you know, when you look at me that way, I have this image that at any given moment, you're going to pull a knife from behind your back and eviscerate me. <laughs> and uh, I was somewhat stunned by it. And all I heard myself saying was, so you're going to, you're afraid I might make you spill your guts. <laughs> oh, that's such a great <laughs> feedback. <laughs> um, but of course, what he was saying was feedback that I had gotten years before in graduate school from a from a professor who says that I had perfected the, the poker face uh, and that clients can be 
you can feel anxious because they're wondering, what are you doing with this information that I'm giving you, right? That it can be too, too neutral. And yet there are times in my career I can, I can recall when having, a, having basically a non-reaction to really heavy stories was exactly what my client needed. And so it can, it can be a mixed bag for sure. Such an interesting feedback to get, because again, like in graduate school, that's what they teach people, right? Have a poker right. face. And like, if you have emotion, never show emotion in a way, but then I guess like what I learned, and it seems like what's aligned with what your experience is that it's important to be human. <laughs> you got to show your kind of authentic self and uh, it's kind of bringing that to the bedroom also can be helpful. And just there's so many people that are struggling with like, especially over control people with showing their emotions, like emotional yeah. kind of like authenticity and the showing availability. It's like, it's the most challenging thing at times for them. How can people work on that? When I have a couple come in and they say, we are not close, I listen to their their story a little more. And then I quickly realize, oh, they are too close. They are too close. Uh, and I'll even say that to them. I think you're too close. And they'll, they'll look really surprised. And I explain to them the difference between closeness and intimacy. Closeness is about low risk, low anxiety, high predictability, comfort, and familiarity, right? Intimacy, on the other hand, is high risk, high anxiety, low predictability, newness, and novelty. Think about affairs or think about the beginning of any kind of romantic relationship. And so helping the client see that often what gets in their way is the drive for too much of the of the control, too much of the uh, 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 alleviating uncertainty, too much predictability, and moving in the direction of creating space for the uncertainty. Um, so uh, having intimacy requires connection, but connection requires vulnerability. And vulnerability requires an element of uh, courage, and courage requires an element of fear. And I guide my clients through that progression that if they want greater intimacy, then there are processes that have to occur before they get there. They, they can't just come in for a session, go home and have, and have intimacy, but rather they have to see, oh, that may be a big reason that they don't have the kind of intimacy that they want is because they have too much rigidity around rules. I agree with you. And I think it's such a good way of looking at it because sometimes people, what you don't want more of that closeness. So you want to make sure that you are incorporating other true missing element as you were talking about it. In your book, it has like, I feel almost every chapter, it has a really actionable, great exercise in it. And one of the exercises I like was building a love fire exercise. I was wondering if, if that is okay if we gift our listeners with that exercise. Yeah, yeah. So in this exercise, I used the, the example of fire of desire. If a couple comes in and they tell me that, uh, they, that they've uh, lost their, their, the heat of passion, 
I understand intuitively that it's likely one of two things, maybe both, are a problem. And that is, in order for fire to be maintained, it needs fuel and oxygen, right? So the fuel are the, the little things that you bring to the relationship on a daily basis, on a regular basis. These are the new ways of, of, of showing up. You're adding fuel to the fire. Oxygen is that showing up as a sexual person, right? Believing I am a sexual person. I'm sure you have the experience of so many people thinking that they're no longer a sexual person. Well, that's just not possible. You are a sexual being 24-7. So let's, let's address those two elements. And once we have that, particularly for over-controlled people, they still need a sense of containment. Right. They need a sense of, of there's a order where this flame can can be free to grow. And that's that fire pit and those rocks that go around the fire. And those rocks simply represent your values, the things that are important to you in order to feel safe, in order to explore your sexuality. And so I encourage couples to find rocks and create this almost altar in their bedroom where they, they create, uh, you know, maybe uh, seven to 10 uh, rocks and they write on the rocks these values that are important to them relative to uh, uh, sex and sexuality. And then they uh, construct, uh, use construction paper, you know, yellows and oranges and reds to represent those flames, which is in essence your you can use that as, as the oxygen because we can't see oxygen, right? So we're going to represent those flames. And then the, the twigs are the ways, so you can do some construction paper or what have you, that represent the twigs of what is your promise to each other to add to the relationship on a, on a continuous basis so that you have a visual of, of this. We're, we're going to work towards maintaining and nourishing this fire of desire. Because as we know, uh, particularly within monogamous relationships, liking your partner decreases about 4% per year. Oh, no. <laughs> desire for your partner decreases 8% per year, right? So that kind of passion decreases about 8% per year within, really within monogamy. So it takes a great deal of intentionality to ensure that that viability is is there for the long term. Well, I, I think being intentional, as you mentioned, and being kind of prioritizing your relationship, I think yes. is very, very important. Because early on, even with that fire and excitement, what really makes things work is like you're thinking about the partner, you're prioritizing it. Now, as you mentioned, like you have 4% less attraction and 8% less desire, and you, you're you now prioritizing your partner. And of course, that leads to challenges in the bedroom. Tom, I love the book. I, I thought it, it was filled with lots of great actionable tools and also information that clinicians as well, they can use. I read a lot of sexual health, sex therapy books, but I find your approach very unique. So tell us who can benefit from the book? Well, anyone who's experiencing those sexual problems that are tied to an over-controlled temperament. 
And one of the things that I add in chapter one is that there is a self-test that they can take in order to determine, you know, do you lean over-controlled or do you lean under-controlled? When, when, again, as we mentioned, that over-controlled temperament can have a lot of benefits, but if it's going to become a problem, it will tend to become a problem in people's sex lives and in their intimate relationships. So that's what uh, this book is about, is helping people to learn how to turn down the volume on their over-controlledness so that they can have more meaningful and fulfilling relationships. Beautiful. So where can people find you? Where can they find the book? Uh, tell us more about that. Yeah, so people can visit me at drtommurray.com as well as follow me on Instagram at Dr. Tom Murray. And the book is currently available in Kindle and paperback on Amazon. Beautiful. And we will leave a link in the show notes to the resources. And thank you so much for being so generous with the information and with the book. And hopefully we're going to have you back in future episodes. It was so much fun. Thank you for having me. I hope you guys found our conversation meaningful and you got some good information about what you can do to take your sex life to next level. I love Tom's book and I recommend you to check it out. And one of the concepts that really resonated with me was this concept of do your eyes light up that he talked about. Because what I realized for many people in long-term relationship, they tend to get too comfortable in the relationship. We're not showing our excitement and enthusiasm. And sometimes actually people hide when they are in a good mood because they feel that their partner wants something from them or start nagging. One of the funny stories that we have in our family is my mom was telling me that she <laughs> walked into my dad's business and he was with my grandfather. And my grandfather said, make sure you never show your enthusiasm to your your wife because they, they would want something from you. He was making a joke about it, but we know the mentality. And we know that sometimes when we're in a relationship, we're not putting our best foot forward. Anyhow, I hope that that's not you. If you happen to read Tom's book, let me know what you think. And I'll see you next week right here. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.